0: Amy Carroll.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. As a communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, I'm delighted to be your host and excited to bring you insights and ideas to help you solve your communication conundrums. This is the 28th episode of my show, Partner Up with Amy Carroll. If you want to find out more about me or what the show's about, feel free to listen to previous episodes on my website, carolcoaching.com or go directly to the voiceamerica.com business channel. Be sure to download the app or check it out wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Now, if you missed last week's show, I interviewed Matthias Hartman, who is a somatic coach. Mateus calls himself the coach to call when life is calling for a change. We explored his embodied approach of digging deep in internal blockages, of change and looking at the fear behind the speaking or rather behind speaking in public. So be sure to check out that episode from last week. Today, my guest is Sarah Payton. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, Amy, thank you for having me. So Sarah, I to help me remember, I think you and I have met for the first time, I want to say it was in Poland. Yes. About four or five years ago, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that also yeah that's all it is It's a guess <laughs> <laughs> I remember the room, I remember the people, and it was a week long constellation workshop, or several days at least I know very intense. yes, so Sarah, before I start firing questions at you, I want to give the listeners some background so they know who who you are and and uh engage a bit more uh we're Talk, going to be talking about what constellation work is, and before I do, let me give my listeners a background. So, Sarah is a certified trainer of nonviolent communication, constellation facilitator, and neuroscience educator. Sarah integrates brain science and the use of resonant language to heal trauma and also to nourish self warmth with exquisite gentleness. And I can tell you that I have been the recipient of that gentleness, and it is exquisite indeed. (laughs) Sarah teaches and lectures internationally and is the author of the book, Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing. Her second book is titled Your Resonant Self Workbook. It's going to be published May 25th of this year, and it's already available for pre-order on Amazon. And in the fall, because Sarah's not busy enough, she's going to whip out another book, and this one's going to be (laughs) Affirmations for Turbulent Times. Boy, that timing is good, Sarah. Yeah,
2: (laughs) no kidding. (laughs) The publisher got so excited about that one that they created an expedited schedule. I have never had them do a turnaround so fast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like, yes, we all need it. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Sarah offers trainings focused on learning and using resonant language to transform the brain. She brings together deep work and self-kindness, integrating relational neuroscience with the healing of potential, the healing potential of relationship. Sarah, I got to stop and interrupt and ask you if you can explain what all of that means. Sure. Let me let me say this part, the integrating relational neuroscience with the healing potential of relationship. Go for it. Well, what we know about trauma,
2: what we know about the... Okay, so first of all, let's start with the idea that your brain is supposed to be a really good place to live.
1: Okay, fair, fair enough. (laughs)
2: And for many of us... It is a dangerous place filled with whirling knives and stabbing (laughs) razors and slashing butcher knives. It's just like a nightmare to go in there. I mean, that's why so many of us spend so many hours, especially during COVID isolation time, tuned into netflix because <laughs> because it's, it's scary it, movies it, on netflix it, it, is a lot less scary than the brain <laughs> that is right it's a lot less scary than being alone with our brain there are even there is even some research where they put people into a room without their cell phone and they said they, 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 it was a research study and they would say to the to the participants here is a little shocking machine. We're going to shock you if you'll let us. I'll pay you, I'll pay you $65 if you'll let me shock you. And the, many of the participants said, no, no, that's okay. I'll pass on the $65. And the research uh, person would say, well, okay, but I just have to fill out some paperwork. So you're going to have to stay in this room before I can let you go. And the researcher would leave, and this was the real part of the research, right. they would leave the person alone in there with that machine and no cell phone, nothing to do, no books. They were alone with their own brain. 50% of the people who were left alone in that room who had said, no, I will not be shocked for $65 when they were left alone for 15 minutes ended up shocking themselves.
1: Oh my gosh, that's crazy. It is crazy.
2: It is crazy. It uh, probably speaks to solitary confinement and how what a bad idea that is for human brains. But it also speaks to our growing understanding that the inside of our own brains can be a very terrifying and Mm -hmm. shaming place to be alone with. And that's what I, that's my mission. How do we transform human brains so that we are kind to ourselves in there
1: so that they're good nests for us how, how to become let's hear that again how to transform our brains so they become kind nests
2: yeah yeah And then, of course, our life energy is freed up for all kinds of creativity, social change, entrepreneurial energy, commitment, contribution, because we're not spending all of our time trying to make the brain turn off and trying to figure out what the heck's going to make it turn Mm -hmm. off, which, of Mm -hmm. course, includes other people's stories like movies and TV shows, but also includes things like alcohol, how much alcohol do we consume to turn off the brain And um, and other behaviors and addictions that we might experience as not being particularly good for us. Mm -hmm. So, Mm. including, of course, workaholism for those of us who are... Ding, ding, ding.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Any takers? (laughs) Mine's more busyness versus workaholism. Uh Ah, just staying busy. Yeah, just staying busy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh. Sarah is delighted by the self-compassion that arises from the understanding how language and resonance changes our brains, heals trauma, and gives us that new energy, well-being, and choice that she was just talking about. And her work focuses on how we hear and understand one another effective ways to connect hearts and the emergence of self. Yes. You say your passion is watching people's self-understanding to deepen into warmth. Yeah, that's such a nice thing.
2: And so, so the way this work goes, the way this work works is the reason that our brains are so difficult is because we've been left alone with them. Mm. So we need to learn how to accompany each other. And as soon as there's accompaniment, brains start to change in marvelous ways. And what does that mean, accompaniment? Yeah. Accompaniment means that somebody else gets a little bit of what it's like to be us just, just the sense of like we're not alone with it mm-hmm. and and if listeners if you are already feeling a little bit of relief just from us describing the inside of the brain that is not kind to us that's what we're talking about that's the beginning of this it's the beginning of self-compassion okay. people are out there going ah oh. My brain's mean to me. So many other people's names are brain, brains are mean to them. This all
1: makes sense. This mm. is not just me being defective. And is that literally I can feel the aha moment and the it's incredible how uh, when people feel understood and that there's that shared experience, how that alone is what can help them to decompress a tiny bit.
2: Yeah, the stress system starts to relax. Mm. And once the stress system starts to relax, our nervous systems aren't in fight, flight, and alarmed aloneness anymore. And all of a sudden, we are popping up into our social engagement circuits This is the work of Stephen Porges and uh, his polyvagal theory. We pop up into social engagement and we can like look around. It's It's like coming out of a tank. You know, I mean, our amygdala running things, our fear system running things. It's like we're down in the tank and we're just trying to figure out where to aim our little tank cannon. And then we kind of have this sense of safety and we start to pop up and put our head out of the tank and look around and go, oh, look, there are people out here and they're not so
1: bad. So. Sarah you know um, having read a book I think it was called the, the vagal nerve mm. um, I was fascinated by that and maybe you're gonna get into this later so stop me if you are though there are a whole bunch of really really simple uh, techniques and approaches to help trigger that that fight or flight the the parasympathetic, Sympathetic nerve. Do you want to talk about that now, or are you going to talk about that later? Well,
2: my main approach to this is the movement that happens when we have accompaniment. So there are like lots of kind of technical things you can do. That uh, like taking cold showers changes the vagus nerve, and but you of eat. <laughs> <laughs> it puts me into a state of misery, actually. I'm not sure I'd go for that one. <laughs> right. What you eat changes the vagus nerve, you know? Mm. How quickly you drink and what you do. You know, it's like all kinds of things change the vagus nerve. But what's most interesting to me is how does the vagus nerve change when we have a sense that we're, that, that we are being warm with ourselves and understanding mm-hmm. with ourselves? And how do we change others with the mm-hmm. warmth and understanding as well?
1: Gorgeous. So one of the things we said we want to talk about today was the exploring how hard it is to receive feedback, because I can imagine that just will put the brain on a red alert as it has for me. Yeah. <laughs> and what happens to people when they receive feedback, the ideal state for receiving feedback and much more? Yes. So should we what dive in? We, yeah, let's dive in. Okay, good. So, so let's just start with that first one. And maybe in some ways this is obvious, Though I think you're going to give us a a very um, comprehensive explanation that will help people understand. Why is it so hard for us little human beings to receive feedback? Well,
2: part of the answer to this question is, how has feedback been used against us as children? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, adults don't even realize the way in which uh, children are receiving feedback. They, they don't even, uh, they, uh, we as adults have forgotten the vulnerability and openness of a child's brain. So um, if a parenting person says to their kid, hey, um, you don't matter, you don't belong here, you're doing a horrible job, I can't believe that you're not pulling your weight, the kid is like that the, the, for the parent this is like some kind of passing commentary the parent gets mad they blow up that it passes the kid carries that with them for the rest of their lives going i'm a terrible person i mm-hmm. don't contribute i don't belong i shouldn't have been born and and so the 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 parent the parent doesn't even realize the impact that they're having and the child doesn't um, doesn't it have a sense that feedback is a positive thing so as soon as somebody says hey can I give you some feedback they're back in that loop of what it was like to be little and to have somebody who had no idea what their impact was telling them what was wrong with them and then the child go the child self within all of us goes down into the tank and is like okay where do I need to aim the cannon uh, we got to blow this person up in order to be able to survive here. We're not going to be able to, this is not going to be a good thing. So there's no lived experience of feedback being supportive. Now, feedback as professionals is of immense interest and support and gives us all kinds of information about how to improve what we're doing about how what we're doing is contributing or not contributing how to course correct how to change uh, our strategies in order to make things work better but if we're down in that tank we cannot tell we cannot tell what the good stuff is and sift it out sift it out from the from the difficult stuff
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I, want, I want to go off on a tangent for a second. And there may mm-hmm. not be a fit here, though, when you were talking about childhood, and of course, my mom popped into my mind. And um, my, one of the themes that, and I come from a large Irish Catholic family, you know, so seven kids, as you know, um, one of the themes in my childhood was, there was a shaming element around watching television in the daytime. Oh, dear. And I don't know if that's... And it's what, what I find humorous and amazing about it is that it seems that each one of my siblings share this, at least a couple that I've talked to recently, that, that shaming feeling. Um, is that somehow related to feedback? And, and how does that get... How did that likelihood, that likely get mixed up? Well, when you and I were young... The things
2: that were on TV in the daytime were soap operas, so (laughs) true. (laughs) So there was a whole (laughs) (laughs) Days of Our Lives. (laughs) So there was a whole sort of culture and class ideas about who watches TV and who doesn't in the daytime. Mm. Who watches soap operas? Who has the time? Who has the Who has the idleness? Who has the the being trapped at home experience who isn't out volunteering who, who isn't uh, running the league of women voters which is what my mother did uh, <laughs> who isn't doing it yeah so um so there's that piece and and that also speaks to the kind of the way that we carry an internalization of contempt and we can carry all kinds of different contempts that uh, that create our cultural mores about what what's a, what's a good thing to do and what's a bad thing to do what's a good way to look and what's a bad way to look uh, how do we how do we look professional how do we not look professional how do we uh, show up um uh, to carry out our responsibilities, how are we shirking our responsibilities? Wow! There's so yeah, there's so much that just gets embedded with these funny little edges of contempt that travel through every family. Yeah, and and make different things off limits. Mm-hmm. So for one family, for one family drinking caffeine is off limits for one family watching tv during the day is off limits for one family being overweight is off limits for one family attending church is off limits for another family being an atheist is off limits it's the yeah. family culture gets created with these streams of embodied communication of what is acceptable and what is
1: not wow that i hadn't real realize there was such a deep connection with the society society the culture and um, class as well you mentioned that with the around yeah. the, the daytime tv watching yeah. jeez so all right so coming back to feedback what happens to people's nervous systems when they well, receive feedback
2: yeah when well in in our worst case scenario which is where we're going into the tank the um The uh, heartbeat uh, increases, the cortisol increases. There's an anticipation of shame. Shame is the emotion that creates the greatest flow of cortisol for humans. So it is the thing we most try to avoid. Shame is the emotion emotion that that creates the greatest flow of cortisol. In human bodies. Wow. That's why yeah. we run so fast from shame. Okay. Yeah. And from, and from feedback because, of course, we have an embodied experience of feedback being shaming. Okay. Yeah. And feedback separating us from our people. Like the way that feedback is so often used is to tell people what they're doing wrong mm-hmm. and how they don't belong and what they need to be doing differently in order to be able to regain their belonging or yeah. that it's hopeless
1: and they're never going to regain their belonging which is another way that feedback can be used. You know, I when I do these my my courses whether they're face to face or for the time being online, I always send an evaluation form. And whenever I get it back, even though like I can tell people are really happy and delighted and everything, there is still that sense of panic's not quite the right word, uh, foreboding of, of fear, of dread to open the evaluation forms, to read possible criticism. And I think, wow, this is crazy. After 21 years of being in business, of being wildly successful the majority of the time, it amazes me that this still can have such a grip on me and trigger such a uh, a concern about what if someone's not happy. And, and
2: vulnerability, we're, by opening the feedback form, we're stepping into vulnerability and we're stepping into, um, uh, it's, it's quite interesting, the part of the brain that creates differentiation. So the part of the brain that we need to come online to be able to offer the feedback, which says, this worked, this didn't work so well. Um, that part of the brain is inherently a non-relational part
1: of the brain. What part is? I, I didn't get that. The,
2: the, the, brain, the brain that's capable of making differentiations. It's okay. the instrumental brain. It's the non-relational brain. We have two major brain systems that are at work, and they can be roughly analogous to the hemispheres. So one of the brain systems is the get-things-done hemisphere. hmm And the get things done system runs on dopamine, likes to, likes accomplishment, likes to check off the to-do list. It's, it's the kind of, I call it the instrumental brain, get things done brain. The get things done brain, when we're in there, we don't really see other people as people. We see other people as functions and roles, and they're supposed to be filling their, fulfilling their function and carrying out their responsibilities that are connected to their roles Period. There's no, there's no sense of the other person really existing as a relational being. And if we're looking at the brain and trauma and accompaniment and lack of accompaniment, then the shift into solely the instrumental brain is, uh, it's like we are with our evaluation forms, handing people the razors, like saying, okay, cut. And this is a part of, kind of, uh, of w- why we feel so vulnerable. And why there's that little bit of dread and foreboding, when we open up the evaluation forms, even when people love us, we're handing them and we're handing them an instrument for their instrumental brain mm. to to differentiate and to say what really worked and what didn't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the more people are integrated, the more everybody's brain is integrated, the more wonderful the world is. So the more people's
1: instrumentality is connected to their relationality, the more wonderful their feedback is. And you may get into this in more detail, though. How do you connect the instrumental to the relational?
2: Well, there's another um, another writer whose work I love very much. His name is Ian McGilchrist. And he talks about the hemispheres of the brain and the, the hundred years of split brain research that comes out of the 20th century and the way that it shows us that each of these two different systems, the instrumental and the relational brain, or the left and the right hemisphere, uh, see the world differently. And he brings this wonderful pa- parable about the master and his emissary where the master has, has just, is a philosopher king. And he's thinking about, um, about what's best for his country. And he mm-hmm. has a, and he has a servant who goes out and and manifests what he wants. And this is the best possible way for the country to be run for the, for this, for the philosopher king to have really good ideas and for the decisions to be made based on those. And, um, and the worst way for the uh, country to be run is for the philosopher king not to have any input at all, and for the emissary to figure everything out based on profit for himself. And that's sort of uh, our brains in a way. So that's a very quick parable of mm. instrumental and relational. We need the philosopher king within all of us to be alive and contributing.
1: Mm-hmm. So... Um for me, it's still somewhat um, conceptual, and I think it's going to be so exciting to, to take it to an, the next level of detail. In a couple of minutes, we're going to take a break. So let's cover a little bit more around the feedback, and then we'll move into um, the other more concrete approaches that you may offer us. Um, My next question for you then, you talked about what happens to people's nervous systems. What are some of the most common reactions to feedback? Panic, overwhelm, lack
2: of desire to see it, defensiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, This is our worst case scenario. Of course, this is us inside of our tanks. Battening Mm -hmm. down the hatches, not looking, not reading, not taking in, not hearing, feeling immense shame. Uh, yeah, beating ourselves up without even being able to tell what the other person is saying,
1: catastrophizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have, um, it, I'm sure l- listeners will be able to relate to this. Oh, sometimes when I'm anticipating negative feedback, I like one time I read an email from a friend and I was like, oh, man, she just ripped into me and she and it was it was pretty horrible. And then for some reason, I decided to just, you know, read it again because I don't know, I wanted to torture myself some more or something. <laughs> and Sarah, lo and behold, what I read in her email was not what she wrote. Hmm. I had so gone in with a, a pre pretext, you know, assumptions about um, her what she was going to say and that it was going to be bad. And it was going to be critical. That my brain couldn't actually read the actual yeah. words. Yeah, this is our nervous system. It,
2: it it's predisposed to decode everything as hostility when we're inside the tank.
1: Yep. <laughs> we're. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> fascinating. Mm-hmm. So we have time for maybe one more question before we go to okay. break. Uh, what are some unconscious contracts? Uh, and maybe we need to talk, explain like what an unconscious contract is and how they're connected to feedback. Do you have, yeah. do you need more than a minute to explain? I do. Conscious? I need
2: more. I need a little more than a minute. Yeah. For that one. But just to put it very quickly, an unconscious contract is an agreement we make with ourselves that we don't even know about that sets us up in this case, to receive feedback with a great deal of defensiveness and and that what you were touching when you uh, read your letter with your predisposed ideas um, was uh, you were touching an unconscious contract Yeah, to possibly believe the worst about yourself or to believe that people would believe the
1: worst about you. I'm, you and I have done work around unconscious contracts, and I find them fascinating. What are two or three examples of an unconscious contract that people make with themselves? Uh, I will, um, I will
2: be, the, the, I will be the very best um, employee. I will, I will be the very best employee, or the very best child, or the very best person, in order uh, to to be included and to belong. I will never make any mistakes in order to have a place, no matter the cost to myself. The problem with these is that they're so rigid that then you can't receive the feedback because you have a contract not to make any mistakes. So you have to demolish the person who's bringing the, you have to kill the messenger in order to survive the feedback experience.
1: Yeah. So um, I like how you say that. They're, they're so extreme and rigid and unbending. It's not a bad thing to say, you know, I want to be the best employee. It's uh, um, not make mistakes. At, how do you say it at the end? The cost to myself? No matter the cost to myself. No matter the cost to myself. That is always the phrase for me that I find almost bone chilling. No matter the cost to myself. All right. So let's pause here. We're going to pick it up when we come back. And listeners, if you want to connect with Sarah, find out more about Sarah, you can go directly to her website, com, And that's S-A-R-A-H-P-E-Y-T-O-N.com. You can also check out her book, yourresonantself.com, Or you can check out Sarah's videos on YouTube, Sarah Payton on YouTube. When we come back from break, we'll hear more from Sarah. Stay tuned. You're listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you have colleagues, family members, or neighbors that just drive you crazy sometimes? Do you occasionally find yourself feeling disrespected, mistreated, or annoyed by others? As a no-nonsense communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, Amy Carroll may have a solution for you. For over 35 years, Amy has studied status and power dynamics, what sabotages relationships, results, and how to get desired outcomes in business and personal interactions. Make your partner look good is a philosophy from improvisational theatre as well as Amy's favorite mantra. For the last 20 years, she has been using her superhero powers to inspire individuals and multinationals around the globe to transform their communication and tap into their own partner powers. With concrete behavior changes in voice, body language, words, and attitude, Amy shows clients what to keep and what to change to get more of what you want more often with less hassle. Visit carolcoaching.com today. That's C-A-R-R-O-L-L coaching.com. you are listening to partner up with amy carroll we want participation from you feel free to send an email to amy at CarolCoaching.com. now back to partner up with amy carroll here again is amy
1: welcome back to partner up with amy carroll my guest today is Sarah Payton. We've been discussing why it's so hard to receive feedback and what happens to people when they receive feedback. Before the break, we were talking about unconscious contracts. So Sarah, I want to turn it back over to you and pick it up from there.
2: Yes. So these unconscious contracts we touched on, the idea that we would have a contract never to make a mistake. Never making a mistake is the most uh is a contract that hinders us the most in trying to receive feedback because as we said if we if we have to be perfect, then we don't get to have slipped in any way we don't get to re we we don't get to course correct if we're perfect, and we don't get to course correct if we have a contract to be perfect, which means of course that we have to go down into our little tank turret and shoot everybody with the big cannon in order to make them go away, killing the messenger.
1: Sarah, yeah. Let me check with you though. Cause I don't, perceive, and you know me and feel free to just um, give your opinion. If you think what I'm saying is a bunch of malarkey. I don't consider, ma- see myself as a perfectionist. And yet, as you know, I, you and I both know, having worked together, working with you uh, that I have created like many people do my own unconscious contracts. So People who are, is it accurate to say that people who are not perfectionists also create these unconscious contracts? It's the unconscious contract that is so rigid and and unreasonable that it's as if you have to be perfect. Yes. Yes. I'd
2: like to just take us into the realm of intimate relationships for a little moment. Yes. So even if we don't have a contract to be perfect, we can have a contract never to hurt our partner. Mm. And so if we have a contract, I will never hurt my partner. Uh, in, in order to uh, in order to live in integrity with my deepest values, for not harming. No matter the cost to myself, then if we're, you know, having an intimate connection and their partner says, ouch, then all of a sudden the contract is broken. Mm -hmm. And then there's this tremendous shame, like crashing shame comes in because not because the person has made a mistake, not because they're perfectionist, but because they really honestly do not want to hurt anybody ever. And it can lead to, I've worked with many couples where this contract has led to decades of no physical intimacy. (laughs) Holy smokes. Holy smokes, which shows us that there are all kinds of contracts that are made in the very best of intentions that lead to an inability to receive feedback. So, for each person, if you know you have difficulty receiving feedback, the best way to do it is to kind of dig into it a little bit and say, I solemnly swear to my essential self that I will not, and then see what comes out, make a mistake, I will not be a bad person, I will not um, I will not cry, I will not show my emotions, I will not acknowledge my vulnerabilities, and
1: then... Okay, and let's say it part, again. I solemnly swear to my essential self and then yes, see what comes. Yes, that I will, yeah, and that, that I will not or that I will always
2: or I will never and see what's there. And then the next part is in order to. Now, with the in order to, we often think that we know why we're doing something. But the whole thing about an unconscious contract is that it's unconscious. We don't actually <laughs> know why we're doing it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it anymore. We would go, oh, that's a silly idea. Mm-hmm. But we don't actually know why. Mm. So we have to look at it more deeply. And we can use the words in order to, and then we pause. And you close your eyes, and you're just like going with whatever comes. Like, I will never make a mistake. And now we want to think not just of ourselves, but we want to think about who this contract is connected to. So I will never make a mistake in order to be safe. People often say that, but we need to go a little farther. We need to know who we need to be safe from. Mm -hmm. I will never make a mistake in order to be safe from the humiliation that my father dishes out whenever a mistake is made in our family. Mm -hmm. now we're starting to touch something that we weren't walking around thinking about because we're 50 years old and we're like my father has been dead for 10 years and I'm not thinking about him anymore and we don't realize that we're carrying these old relationships within us Mm -hmm. so we go okay I will not make a mistake in order to make sure my father doesn't kill me with his sarcasm and then we and then we go whoa okay now that really lands for me I can feel that And actually, that does sound a little silly now, given that he is dead. And I release myself from this contract. (laughs) I revoke this vow. Like there's a formality to the process that lets our bodies and our brains know, hey, this is serious. And we get to let go of it. We get to look at things and say, is this really what I want? Mm -hmm. But we can't look at them and say, is this really what I want? If we're stopping at, I will not make a mistake in order to be safe.
1: We have to know what we're safe from, what we're trying to be safe from. Sarah the example you give it helps to find to see a little of the humor or the silliness in it like you said because in that example the father has already died so of course there's you've got no responsibilities what are some examples that it's harder for people to give up the unconscious contract or do, do you find people are torn Oh, all the time, people get so torn. They listen
2: to this process and they think, that's just easy and silly and it's just people saying words. But then they get into it and you say, you wanna release this contract? And they go, no, this is a very good contract for me. This is making me safe. I will not make a mistake in order to survive uh, humiliation and ridicule. I'm not gonna give this up, they'll say. Yeah, this is someone I'm going to hold on to. I don't want to make any mistakes. You know, you can sort of hear, and this takes us into our next very important concept. You can sort of hear the buzziness around those words. I'm not going to give this up. Yeah. And you can tell that something really bad has happened. Yeah. You're talking trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking trauma. I'm talking moments where we were really alone. With a bad thing, and our amygdala said to us, "We will never let that mm-hmm. happen again and yeah. that's part of unconscious contracts is the moments of trauma that's why we make them because we mm-hmm. were horribly alone with somebody somewhere sometime, either alone in terms of being all alone with somebody in a, in a room, and it was really scary, and they were humiliating or or shaming us or being alone in a room full of people, like in a classroom with a teacher where we're surrounded by a bunch of kids who are laughing at us and the teacher's making fun of us. Mm-hmm. And that's also terribly alone, even though we're in a room full of people. Because yeah. nobody is with us. Yeah, We are exquisitely social beings. Mm-hmm. And we are so attuned to whether or not people are with us. Yeah. There's so many markers in our nervous system and that's, that tell us
1: whether or not somebody's with us. It's Sarah, it's it's extraordinary. And it's I it seems to me, being 57 and a half, that we don't outgrow that. No, we don't outgrow that at all. We yeah. have in
2: our skin we have sensors that are particularly made for body to feel body warmth. They're not the sensors that light up. They're not the thermoreceptors that light up when it's too hot or we've sat next to a radiator or we need to move away from the fire or we're too cold. It's an entirely different set of thermoreceptors that are targeting body heat. We need body heat. We need body warmth. We need to know. that we Our neurobiology is a social neurobiology, and our culture is a solitary culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's yeah. a clash yeah. between our
1: culture and our neurobiology. Mm. Yeah. It, you know, what I'm imagining when you're saying that we're social, I, I think about... Now, with so many of us walking around wearing masks, what I find is sometimes people then disconnect from the eye contact too. Yeah, um, that, that that somehow they think that if I don't look at the person, I'm helping reduce, you know, the transmission <laughs> of, of COVID or the reception of COVID. Like, no, people, we can still have eye contact. So that's far, that's still really safe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing to me how, um, what a little buzz of energy I get. This might be because my, my temperature receptors are being recognized. I don't know, though, the, 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 um, the, just walking down the street, passing a stranger and having a little moment of connection, like the other day, it was a little girl who was um, singing to herself, and it was just so entertaining to watch, and she was on her bicycle, and I, I could just see that I was having joy watching her. And then when she looked up at me and the, you know, the connection we had, and I thought, it's crazy how something mm. so simple and so fleeting um, can give so much joy. And nourish you. Yes. yes. How beautiful. Yeah. Just in the last in the last month I,
2: I've gotten so tired of the of the COVID isolation that I've taken to actually asking people's names when I'm out walking. <laughs> I walk my dog and they have a dog and I'm like, and what's your dog's name? And what's your name? <laughs> Which was
1: not my habit before all of this. <laughs> you take whatever you get. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> You know, in my, my, before we go back into the discussion around feedback, do you have any um, more like tidbits or suggestions around the struggles that so many of us are dealing with with the isolation of COVID? Well, I love what Stephen
2: Porges says, which is to get used to the the reality that we that that our energy is streaming into the the video screens when we're on Zoom and we're with people, that we're not just downloading like it was a movie, that we're in relationship. And to just find, like you're finding the relationship in eye contact, also to let ourselves feel energetically that we're with people, even though we're separated Mm. and connecting via video screens, to let ourselves feel our togetherness. Yeah. Instead of thinking that it's just a just a one-way download, like watching a Hollywood movie,
1: that we're actually, this is our lives. Yeah. We're in this. This is yeah. for us. And we're it, participating. That's uh, reassuring to me because the leadership is going to do a little publicity here for my leadership <laughs> program, the online course. One of the skills I'm teaching people is something called a beach ball. And symbolically, the use of that word to connect and engage with people, sometimes complete strangers, immediately. And it's it's providing exactly what you've just described. It's building that, you know, energetic connection, um, even just, you know, something that is um, simple and and playful. Yes,
2: simple and playful and doable. But also just, you know, like, it's part of this whole thing about, uh, about self-warmth that 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 makes self-warmth so important when we're talking about trauma, when we're talking about unconscious contracts, what's really key for us is to begin to uh, turn toward ourselves with warmth, which of course we can have unconscious contracts against doing. So we need to mm. start to release those
1: unconscious contracts. What would it, be an example of an unconscious contract people have against self-warmth?
2: Yeah. One example would be, uh, I will not, there are so many, I will not be warm with myself in order to make my mother right, in order to, to make sure my mother gets to be right about me. Mm-hmm. I will not be warm with myself in order to um, keep from being, keep from moving into anticipation and hope that others will be warm with me in order to keep myself safe from disappointment and heartbreak.
1: Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Yeah.
2: yeah. I will not be warm with myself in order to fit into my family system where nobody is warm with themselves.
1: Because then you uh, become an outsider.
2: Yeah, you exactly.
1: do Not belong anymore.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I will not be warm with myself in order to keep uh, to keep myself safe from others sar- sarcasm and humiliation and ridicule.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Yeah. All what, kinds of these. What would be? I'm thinking of something. I don't know if it's an unconscious contract. Um, I won't be warm with myself. Um, it's like it's the what I come across with some of my coaches is they don't want to be too gentle or nice on themselves with themselves because they think that that means they're going to become a couch potato. Right.
2: Yes, that's a very important one. Okay. Yes. So
1: I'll be. I won't be warm with myself in order to avoid. Becoming lazy or... Or
2: depressed or dissolving into goo or losing my motivation or Mm -hmm. all kinds of things like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So these unconscious contracts have good intentions. They have
2: such good intentions. They always want to save our lives and make us safe and keep us safe from being disappointed and keep us safe from being humiliated and help us belong in our family systems and in our cultural systems. Yeah. And the, that message that self-warmth it equates to a loss of all motivation comes from very deep cultural roots. It comes from uh, roots that go into the Bible, into the Christian church. It comes from roots that are embedded in the, the world of uh, capitalism of working hard for our money—they uh, come from the family roots of uh, of, um, of family cultures about survival, uh, families that have lived through famine and more, and and where it's dangerous to to th- that in family history and social and cultural and world history, it's been dangerous to relax even for a moment that we must stay vigilant in order to survive. There are so many very important uh, efforts that our unconscious contracts are making to keep us safe and keep us alive. But the problem with them is that we don't realize that self-warmth is actually the thing that makes us most resilient and most powerful because it lets we come back to that parable of the master and the emissary it lets our philosopher king have the reins Mm -hmm. it lets our philosopher king say okay um what's really important to me is making sure that uh that that every voice matters how are we going to do that emissary within the self how are we going to set up our our community meet our, our company meeting? How are we going to structure this so that everybody has input? What are we thinking about the structure of our company? Does it does it provide the access to creativity that we want to be supporting in this company? All of those questions are the questions that are asked by our inner philosopher kings. And our inner philosopher kings are bolstered by it's like they're sitting on a throne of self-warmth. It's like th- that is their that's what gives them the possibility of relaxing and resting enough to be able to see what are my most important values are they being reflected in the way I run my department are they being reflected in the way in, in the mission statement of the company that I've created how can I bring
1: my values into what I'm creating and doing in the world well, that's gorgeous Um, before I ask you my last question around feedback, I'm curious to know if there was anything else that you wanted to share about self-warmth or unconscious contracts or anything else. uh, I
2: want to share. Yeah. yeah. I want to share that people who have self-warmth look like they are self-reliant and independent. That's how they, because they're carrying within them both their own self-warmth and they're carrying within them their community's warmth for them. And so they're moving into the world with a confidence and from the outside, because when we look at people, we don't see their community embedded within them. We think, oh, this person is really independent. They're Mm -hmm. really competent. They're really focused. They get a lot done. They have kindness and they're so independent. That's what I want to be. I want to be self-reliant and independent too. But we don't realize that that person has this entire embedded community and this entire embedded warmth. So it's strange because self-warmth is invisible in many ways. And so yeah. we what we're modeling ourselves on is systems that have an invisible component that we are not quite seeing. And once we begin to realize, oh... There's self-warmth in this system. That's why it works so well. Then we start to kind of tear down those ideas that your clients, that my clients, that so many people in the world have, that if they move towards self-warmth, they're going to become a couch potato. Yeah. It starts to, to take that idea apart, that self-warmth is something different than total uh, permiss, what's that word for when you give permission to everything when you don't, when you have no boundaries and and no, uh, no, dis- a free for all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, a free for all into
1: couch potato dumb. <laughs> um, uh, as you were speaking, I'd be curious to know if you've, you've ever been asked this question before. What was popping up for me, Sarah, is who if anyone um, is a, an excellent role model or a role model of excellence for self warmth, Mm. Are, are there people out there who may, maybe listeners would know? Well, I love
2: the people. I love what we see in the world of relational neuroscience. I love seeing the way that learning about relational neuroscience changes the people who learn about it. So, I love seeing how people like Stephen Porges have been changed by their by their research. How people like Bonnie Badenoch have been changed by their experiences with uh, with a deeper understanding of self-compassion and. Can you trauma. give a
1: description of one of them? That what the, their transformation looked like. Uh, Matthew Lieberman uh, started out um,
2: very driven. He's a UCLA neuroscientist. Very driven tons of beautiful articles. And then as he started doing his work, he started to realize how important family was. Mm-hmm. And he was, this, the Russians tried to hire him with a huge contract to bring him to Moscow and do enormous uh, neuroscience work with just like the hugest budget and everything he could possibly want. And he looked at their offer and he and he thought, oh, but my family is so important. And he decided not to take this really lucrative and status-filled offer in order to be able to stay with his family and continue his life uh, Mm. embedded in his community. So, these are the kinds of choices we see people making as their philosopher king becomes uh,
1: empowered by the Mm -hmm. research Mm -hmm. and the information that you and I are talking about today. And this guy didn't become a couch potato, he just found balance and was able to, to regenerate himself with the self-warmth of his Yeah, family. yeah. And he still writes beautiful
2: articles mm. and does beautiful research. And they're all about relationship. His work goes deep more and more deeply
1: into relational exploration. Sarah, we only have a few minutes left. Though I want to just check if there's anything else you want to say about the ideal state of rec- for receiving feedback. The ideal state for receiving feedback is to be out of our tank
2: is to be is to pop, our, pop ourselves up and to look around and to let our let and to let all our unconscious contracts that we have not yet had a chance to release be part of the tank and go yes of course you're here honey's and now we can listen to our friend who's sending in an email or our boss who has some ideas about how to do things differently or a coworker who's experiencing frustration and really listen with the ears of the philosopher king mm. Two, what are the deep longings and needs? How does this align with mission? How does this feedback help me reorient and course correct? So that's what we're really looking for.
1: Mm, Gorgeous. And I want to already move into a call for action for listeners. Uh, Now, listeners, um, what Sarah's work is juicy. It's powerful. It's incredibly rewarding. So my first call for action to you is to download or to pre-order rather her book, the workbook, which is your resonance self workbook. And you can find that on the, on Amazon directly, or you can go to Sarah's website, which is Sarah or you can go directly to the, your website. And Sarah, well, let me turn it over to you. Uh, with the time remaining, what would be one call for action you have for listeners?
2: Well, if you're starting to get intrigued by this world that is a combination of neuroscience and relationality and how the heck do we use language in ways that support uh making brains a really cozy place to live Mm -hmm. you will love the upcoming resonance summit which is happening march 18 to 21st it's free you can sign up on the website sarahpaton.com and we're going to have uh Some of these neuroscientists that I've been referencing in our talk today, Stephen Porges is speaking for us, Uh, Deb Dana, his great interpreter is speaking for us, Bonnie Badenoch will be speaking for us, a gorgeous voice on trauma and relationship, and Ruth Lanius, who talks about the ways in which um, PTSD affects the brain and how uh,
1: tr- how healing work changes PTSD patterns. Wow. Okay, so that's a summit coming up in a couple weeks, and they can find that on your website. Yes, they Wonderful. Can. And listeners, my second call for action, if you want to send me your communication conundrums, clashes, challenges, mishaps, and blunders, and successes, feel free to drop me an email at amy at or Reach out to me on social media. I'll be discussing them on future shows. If you're ready to take your superhero partner powers into the next decade, you can join me for my online Leadership Presence course, and you can check that out on my website, carolcoaching.com. Now, be sure to tune in next week because that's when I'm going to be addressing some of these communication challenges that um, some of you have written in about. And I'm going to be doing this with my amazing social media woman, Talitha Wazel, and we're going to be having a rich discussion with that. Also, if you're game for more, I'm going to be hopping over to Facebook Live five minutes past the hour for a short chat on today's show. Sarah, thank you. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you, Amy. A pleasure to be with you. And thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Happy partnering, everyone.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Join Amy for another edition next Friday at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Central European Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, make it a great week. And remember, make your partner look good.